At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. This Christmas season, we invite you to look deeper into the incredible covenants God made with His people in Scripture. Tune into our current series, Gift Wrapped, From Longing to Lavish, to discover God's unwavering promises to meet the ultimate longings of our heart and ultimately renew our hope with the brilliant truth of the gospel. So one of the fun nuances of uh, Christmas every year is the uh, opening of presents. Who, who loves to open presents? Somebody, yeah, a few of you. I know there's some kids in the room. You guys can especially cheer, right? Who doesn't, I mean, I'm 36 and I still love to get presents. So, um, and one of the things I've noticed, you know, every year we go down to our in-laws and we gather with our nephews and we open presents together and it's one of our great times and they're super generous Um, with our family. But one of the things I've noticed each year is the different styles of the way people open presents. Have you ever noticed this, that there's not like this uniform way that we approach the unwrapping of the presents we get, right? There's all these different kind of styles. Like some of my kids have the cookie monster style, you know, that style where it's like, it's just shreds of paper going everywhere. And it feels like, how did you get that into so many tiny little pieces and just fling it all over the entire living room, right? Some of you, like, you're the, uh, you're the gift wrap saver style, right? You're, like, cutting every... I don't know if you're ever going to use that gift wrap again. I don't... It probably is in a closet somewhere, but you're every tape, every little bit, everything. Some of you, you're, like, the grab and pull style. You just find the biggest seam you can on the paper, and you just rip to see what's underneath. Some of you, you're the shaker right? You've broken the present three times before you ever actually open it because you're trying to figure out what's inside. Or maybe some of you are like me. I'm the slow reveal guy, right? Like I like to savor presents when I get them. So I'm not trying to save the gift wrap, but I just like to open it slowly bit by bit, kind of figure it out, just kind of see it a little bit, kind of savor as long as I can the fact that I get a present, right? And that's the, the fun of Christmas is kind of that idea of the the different presents that we get to unwrap. Well, we've been in this series for the last couple weeks, our Christmas series this season that we're calling Gift Wrapped. And really, through this series, we've been looking back into the Old Testament at some key passages of Scripture where God makes promises to his people. And the word we use for those promises is covenants, that God makes covenants with his people. And we've been looking at each of these covenants because in many ways the covenants are kind of like unwrapping a present. They kind of help us see different nuances and aspects of the ultimate gift that God gives us that we celebrate in this season, which is the gift of Jesus. And covenants are kind of like the slow reveal, right? They're kind of like unwrapping a present slowly to savor it to understand it, to really enjoy it a little bit. One New Testament scholar, Tom Schreiner, says this about covenants. He says that covenants are the backbone of the storyline of the Bible. They help us to unfold the biblical narrative. That is that covenants help us understand the story of what God is doing in the world so that when we get to Christ, we more fully understand who he is. And that's why throughout this season, we've been taking time each week to look at a different covenant and to let it help us understand more the truth and reality of Jesus. It's like slowly unwrapping a present. And so this morning, we come to a specific covenant that God makes with his people in Exodus 
chapter 19. But before we jump into this passage, I want to kind of remind us of where we've been, of how these covenants have been kind of unfurling the story of God. So if you remember, the Bible opens up in the book of Genesis with God creating the world, and God creates the world in such a way that he says it's good. Everything that he makes is good. And at the pinnacle of God's creation, God forms human beings, and he forms human beings in his image, that they are to bear the image of God, and he gives them a specific mission to go and be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. God, from the beginning, creates us as his image bearers to go into the world and Spread his goodness everywhere that we go. And God sets his people in this incredible garden where everything lives in harmony. The Hebrew word is shalom. All the relationships between human beings and God, between human beings and each other, between human beings and creation are harmonious and perfect and good. It's a paradise that God creates. But unfortunately, it doesn't stay a paradise for very long because introduced at the beginning of Genesis 3 is an enemy of God, the serpent, or what we call the Satan. And the Satan tempts Adam and Eve ultimately to disobey God. And because they disobey God, the world falls into brokenness. It falls into sin. We often refer to that chapter as the fall because God's good world falls into disrepair because of sin. But God shows up on the scene in that chapter and he really makes his first promise that kind of sets the tone for all the covenants that will come after it. It comes in Genesis 3.15. God is speaking to the serpent, the one who tempted these first human beings. And this is the promise that God makes. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. So God looks at this enemy and he says, I'm essentially going to put division, conflict, strife between you and between the offspring of the first woman. And then he says this, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Many biblical scholars call this verse early on in the story of the Bible, the first gospel because in many ways it points forward to the promise that God makes here that one day he is going to bring an offspring of the woman who will ultimately crush Satan, will ultimately crush evil, will defeat sin and death and the enemies of God and restore back the world to the way God intended and created it for it to be. And so from the onset of the story of the Bible, you're looking for the person who will come that God will work through to bring his redemption. Now the world falls into utter chaos and sin early on in the story, and so God finds the most righteous person he can, the person of Noah, and he brings him into an ark with his family and then brings a massive flood essentially to wipe the slate clean, to start over. And then when Noah comes out of the ark, God makes a covenant with him, and we looked at this at the very beginning of the series. God makes a promise to Noah that in his work of redemption, he will no longer go about it by seeking to destroy the earth by a flood. And he puts a rainbow in the sky as the sign that God is not against the world, but he is for it. And so you wonder, is Noah going to be the one that's going to restore the earth back to the way God designed for it to be? But Noah quickly fails. And the story continues on, and you still see sin's destructive tendency. And then in Genesis chapter 12, God calls a man named Abram. 
And God makes a promise to Abram, what we would call the Abrahamic covenant. It's the second covenant that we get to. And God essentially promises Abram three things. He says, the first thing is, I'm going to bring you to a land. I'm going to show you a place. And in that land, I'm going to make you a great nation. And then through that nation, through that people, I am going to bless you in a way that it would bring universal blessing to the entire world. And you wonder, is Abraham the one who's ultimately going to defeat God's enemy and restore God's world? But Abraham doesn't. He ultimately fails. And we looked at the Abrahamic covenant last week. And so you're left wondering, who is going to be? How is God going to ultimately begin to bring redemption and blessing And this covenant that God makes with Abraham begins to hang over the storyline. And Abraham has a son, Isaac. And Isaac has a son, Jacob. And Jacob has 12 sons. And one of those sons is Joseph and his amazing technicolor dream coat. But as Genesis and the story of Genesis ends, Joseph and his brothers are in Egypt. And they begin to multiply and to form a great people. And as this Exodus, the book that we're going to look at today, begins... The descendants of Abraham find themselves in Egypt, but there's a pharaoh in Egypt who didn't know Joseph, and he ultimately decides to enslave Abraham's descendants, and they suffer under the slavery of what would have been the great world empire at the time of Egypt. But God calls one man Moses and says through Moses he's going to deliver these people out. And so Moses shows up on the scene and proclaims that God is going to deliver them. And God brings ten plagues against the Egyptians to judge them. And ultimately rescues his people. In the great story that many of us know that Charleston Heston made famous, or however you say his name, I think that's right. Whatever that old movie is that they show on Easter. All right, But the people come through the Red Sea and they're rescued out of Egypt. And in the story leading up, they travel through the wilderness, and in Exodus 19, they're brought to the foot of the mountain of Sinai. And that's where we pick up our story this morning. It says this, On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, so note how long has transpired at this point. The third new moon is essentially three months. So three months since they've been rescued out of Egypt, On that day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. Okay, so note that phrase, because it's going to get repeated. They set out from Rephidim, and they came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. So have you heard the word wilderness enough at this point? You think the author's trying to make a point? There, Israel encamped before the mountain. Now, as we enter into our story, I think it's important for us to think about how Israel, this people, these descendants of Abraham, would have been feeling. They've been wandering in the wilderness for three months. What is the Sinai Peninsula? Now, when I was younger, I lived in Egypt for a couple years, and I got the chance to travel across the Sinai Peninsula. And the Sinai Peninsula can rightly be described as a wilderness. When you drive across it, what you see is brown, and then more brown, and then more brown after that, and then after a few hours, you see more brown. It's not the greatest place to wander around for three months. But God has been providing for Israel through this time, and he brings them to this mountain. But I have to imagine, as you enter into the story, and the author kind of points it, these people have to be a little bit disoriented. Okay, God, you brought us out of Egypt. You rescued us from slavery, but then you just kind of left us out in the desert for a while. What is going on? 
And I almost have to imagine that they have to be wondering at this point, like, God, what is it all about? Why'd you bring us here? What are you doing? Three months in the wilderness can, help, can lead to that, right? Freedom can be great, but when freedom doesn't immediately lead to flourishing, sometimes it can be very disorienting. And I think oftentimes in our own lives, we have a sense of this, all right? Many of us maybe have are here this morning who've experienced the freedom that Christ does, or we're searching for it. We're looking and longing, but we ask the questions, God, why am I here? What, what is this all about? What are you actually doing? And many times in our life, we experience these moments where things can be disorienting, and we're asking God, God, what are you up to? As I was thinking about this, I was thinking about a kids movie I watched several years ago with my kids called Rise of the Guardians. I don't know if any of you have had, who have kids happen to see this movie, but it's the story of Jack Frost. And Jack Frost throughout the story is kind of searching for his identity, who he is, his story, his purpose. And he looks around and he sees all these other magical creatures, Santa Claus, the Tooth Fairy, the Easter Bunny, and he sees all of them with this purpose. But Jack Frost wrestles throughout the movie of why am I here? All I do is make things cold. And there's this great scene early on in the movie where he's wrestling with this, and he sits on top of this uh, house, and he looks up into the night sky. He's confused. He doesn't understand. And he kind of looks up at the moon, and he shouts out, you put me here. The least you can do is tell me why. How many of you ever felt that in your relationship with God? How many of you have felt that moment where you're like, well, you put me here, can you tell me why? What is this all about? Why am I in this season? And I have to imagine that's some of the question that Israel has to be asking. It's great you rescued us from Egypt, but why here? Why the wilderness? What are you doing? Well, God's about to step in and answer their question. Look at verse 3. It says, while Moses went up to God, so Moses here is the mediator between the people and God. It says, The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel. So God's about to speak now. So, yeah, they're in the wilderness, but God's about to show up. And this is the first thing that God says. He says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So in the midst of Israel's disorientation, God steps in, and the first thing that he says is, remember, you have borne witness to my saving action. You saw me bring the plagues against Egypt. You saw me walk you through the Reed Sea. You did and bear witness to my saving act on your behalf. In fact, God highlights a saving action by reminding us how I bore you on eagles' wings. It's this beautiful metaphor of the strength of the eagle that's often used as a symbol of salvation. We don't often see that as a symbol, but actually one of our kind of modern stories has this same imagery in it. If you've ever read or watched the movie, The Lord of the Rings, the eagles are a symbol of salvation in the story. At one point, they show up to rescue Gandalf as he's fighting Sauron on the tower. 
At the end of the movie, they pull Frodo and Samwise from the mountain and rescue them. We see them show up in The Hobbit as we tell the story. It's this beautiful image of saving. And essentially, what God's reminding Israel by saying, I bore you on eagle's wings, is I stepped in and saved you. You were enslaved and I came in and I brought you to myself. Now, this is important because God is about to unpack for them and vicariously through it for us, our identity and purpose. But what I want you to see from the get-go of the text is that our identity and purpose is always rooted in God's action. Our identity, what, who we are and what we are called to do, is ultimately flows from who God is and what God has done. And so even as God's about to give an incredible covenant with his people, he first reminds them this covenant is rooted in what I did and who I am as the God that has saved you from oppression and slavery. All right, our identity and purpose always come from God's saving action. And when you look even in the New Testament, you see time and time again when God reminds his people of their identity, he always reminds them of the good news of his salvation first. Because who we are flows from what he has done. And so God reminds them of that, and then he reminds them of the relationship that they're about to enter into. This is where he says, Now therefore, in verse 5, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. So here, God, here we see it, this covenant that God is now going to make with this people. It's often referred to as the Mosaic Covenant because Moses is the mediator here of the covenant that happens. Now, it's good for us to pause then and remind ourselves, what is a covenant? We use this word, we've used it throughout, but it's good for us to always remember because it's not a very common word. So a simple way to remember a covenant is a covenant is a promise to relationship. It's a promise in and to relationship. It's different from a contract. Contracts is a give this, give that. It's more of a legal relationship in many ways. Covenant is more different. It's a personal relationship. It's a promise that's made into that relationship. We were with my dad last night, and one of my nephews asked him what a covenant is because he asked what I was preaching on, and he gave this great, helpful little thing, right? In a contract, you sign a piece of paper. In a covenant, you shake a hand, right? There's a relationship that is formed in the covenant. I have a contract with my lender for my house. I don't have a relationship with my lender. I have a covenant with my wife, and I have a relationship. So when God comes to make a covenant, he is coming to form a relationship with this group of people. Now, what is that relationship? Well, what you find in this passage, you're going to have to hang with me for one second for my Bible nerdiness, okay? But it's important. What you find when you read through the covenant that God forms in Exodus with his people, both in this verse and the chapters that we're following, is that this covenant follows a common covenant that was made in Israel's day that was known as a suzerain vassal covenant. I know that's a big word. You're just like, I'm checked out. I have no idea what you're talking about, right? That's the formal name. But these were covenants that were made in Israel's day where a king would make a covenant with his people. 
And the king would come and they would establish a relationship and essentially say, I'm going to be your king. You're going to be my people. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to promise faithfulness and obedience to me. And I'm going to promise protection and provision for you. I'm going to be your suzerain and you're going to be my vassal. I know that's a weird term, but that's what it's called. And so when God steps into Israel, he uses this common framework and language that would have been known to them to essentially help them understand, this is the relationship I'm forming with you. I am going to be your king, and I'm going to provide for you and protect you. You then are going to be obedient to me. You're now going to be my people. That's the relationship that is being formed here, and it's a fulfillment of the promise that God ultimately made with Abraham in Genesis 12 when he said, I'm going to make you into a nation. Well, here God is fulfilling that, and he's forming his nation. But what is this nation all about? What is the purpose? What do we see in this text? Well, God continues, and He helps us to see why he has chosen them and what his purpose is for them. And you see, God gives the stipulations at the beginning of verse 5. This is what you're going to do. You're going to obey my voice and keep my covenant. And this is what I'm going to do. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. The first thing that this text reminds us of about their identity and purpose, is that God saves his people to treasure them. God's saving act and the relationship that he forms with his people is one where he treasures them. God reminds Israel, listen, I am the God of the whole world. We see that from the very beginning of the story. I created the world. I created all people. I am the God of all nations. So let's be clear, I'm the God of everyone but I'm going to form a unique relationship with you. And as I form that unique relationship with you, you are going to be a treasure to me. God speaks of the value and the treasuring of his people, that they are going to be the thing he values and cares for more than any other. God saves his people to treasure them. Now, Why does God treasure them? Because Israel's so awesome? Because they're amazing? No. Actually, when God re-ratifies this same covenant with his people in Deuteronomy chapter 7, he reminds them of why he treasures them. It's a great verse. Look at it. I'll put it up on the screen for you. It says this, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth. So you hear that repeated promise. And then this is what he says. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So God looks at Israel and he says, listen, you're my treasured possession, not because of you, but because of me, because of who I am and the worth and value I give you out of my love. We are God's treasured possession because of his love, not because of our value, because of the relationship that we 
You might think of it this way. All of us probably have some sort of treasured possession. You probably have something that you treasure in your life. One of my treasured possessions, I meant to bring it this morning, but I actually forgot when I left the house. But one of my treasured possessions is I have my dad's first Bible. It's a black-covered New American Standard Bible. And I have it in my possession, and I love it. It's one of the treasures that I have. Now, that Bible, if I were to put it up on eBay or try to sell it on Amazon, is not worth very much money. Right? If you looked at that listing on eBay, you'd be like, Who, what is this? The cover is worn, it's tattered, it's marked up all over the place inside, some of the pages are ripped, it's yellowing with age. It doesn't seem to be a very valuable possession, but it's valuable to me. Why? Well, because it's my dad's, because it speaks to my relationship with him. It reminds me of the man he is. It reminds me of the foundation of building God's word into my life from a very young age. And so to me, it is invaluable because of the relationship. What God essentially is saying to Israel is like, listen, you're worth nothing. If I posted you on eBay, nobody's buying you. But because you are mine, because I chose you, because of the relationship I'm forming with you, that's the value that you have. And what we see as the story continues is that God brings this same value to all of his people. In Ephesians, Paul says that we who are in Christ are God's inheritance. Think about that. God inherits you. You're his treasure, not because you're awesome, but because he's awesome. And he's chosen you in Christ. So God saves his people to treasure them. Our identity is rooted in him. But he continues in this and he says, You're going to be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be, verse 6, to me a kingdom of priests. God not only saves his people to treasure them, God also equips his people to minister for him. That part of the identity and purpose that God has for his people is that they will minister on his behalf. God says you are going to be a kingdom of priests. In Israel's day, this is a very common understanding of what a priest would be. Right? A priest, if you would visit in Israel's day any temple of any of the various different religions, you would often find a priest there. And a priest was the go-between between the God that was worshipped at that temple and the people that would come to visit. They were the mediator that represented the idol to the people and the people to the idol. What essentially when God then says the language that he uses of Israel is he says you're going to be a kingdom of priests. You all are going to be the go-between and mediators between me and the rest of the world. Now, Israel had priests that were part of how God worked, but they were meant to be a kingdom. That meant the community was meant to be representative and a mediating factor between the nations and God. One professor, Douglas Stewart, says this. He says, Israel's assignment from God involved intermediation. They were not to be a people unto themselves, enjoying their special relationship with God and paying no attention to the rest of the world. Rather, they were to represent him to the rest of the world and attempt to bring the rest of the world to him. 
Part of Israel's identity and purpose was they were meant to represent and minister on God's behalf to the nations. This is who they were. God did not bless them and treasure them only for themselves. He blessed them, treasured them, chose them, and saved them so that they would be his representative to the nations. That was what their purpose ultimately was. And it's good for us and them to understand that part of God's blessing is for his larger purposes. That God does not give us the benefits of salvation that he gives just for ourselves, but that we might serve and minister to those around us. You might think of it like this. Suppose that you're a salesperson for a company, and one day your boss comes to you and he says, hey, I'm going to give you the company credit card because I want you to go out and take some clients out for dinner and maybe enjoy Well, I'd say enjoy a ball game, but who knows if we'll ever enjoy those again, so we're all waiting, but. And so you stop to think, what's the purpose of the card that you've been giving? Because there's an incredible amount of privilege that comes with having the company credit card, right? It's not your money, it's their money. And you get to spend it, you get to enjoy it, you get to help clients. But that card hasn't been given you and the benefits of that card, so then you can go use it on yourself. No, it has a purpose connected with it. That's essentially what God's reminding Israel. I've saved you and rescued you and given you the benefit of being my people, not for yourself. There's a purpose that's connected to it for you to go out and represent so the nations can come and know me and enjoy me and come into relationship with me. And this is part of God's relationship with his people, both then and even with his people today. God blesses his people, but because we are called to represent him to the world. We, even today, are meant as the church to be a kingdom of priests. Now, we don't have temples in our day, right? But we all have a symbol of a priest. If you were walking through the grocery store and you saw somebody walking with a little white collar tucked underneath their shirt, you would immediately go, hmm, I know what that person's about. I've always kind of wanted to wear one just to see what happens, right? In our tradition, we don't, but, you know, just let everyone know. But you know what that person represents. And essentially what God tells his people then and what he still tells his people today is that you, church, are meant to represent God. That all of us should think of ourselves as wearing a clerical collar all the time. Because when you go to the grocery store, when you interact with your neighbor, when you work your job, when you help out at your kid's school, when you serve the poor, when you go out and do the things that God, you represent God. You're helping people understand the truth of Jesus. This is part of our identity. God equips us to minister and serve and represent him in the world together. This is part of our purpose and identity. And then finally, God gives this last pit of this covenant. He says, not only are you going to be a kingdom of priests, but you're going to be a holy nation. God knits his people into a holy community. That as we're called to minister, God draws us together. That we don't minister on God's behalf by ourselves, but we minister on his behalf together as his people. Israel was called to represent God by being a holy nation. 
And what you see in the rest of the law, from the commandments that God will give in Exodus chapter 20 all the way through Leviticus, God reminds his people over and over and over, be holy as I am holy. That those that represent God are meant to represent him by pursuing holiness, to be set apart, to learn to live life God's way. This is what it meant to be God's people, to be God's nation, that Israel would be governed by God's law, God's ways, so they could represent him. That's what it means to be a holy nation. When you change your citizenship from one country to another, you adopt new laws. You adopt a new culture. You adopt a new way of life. When you come into God's kingdom, you adopt his way. You adopt his life. You adopt his calls in order that you can represent him. That's part of who you are, and that is part of your identity. It's why we together seek to leave sin behind and pursue holiness. It's why we seek to be representatives of God in the way we live, the way we work, the way we serve, the way we do everything. Because it's part of who we are and what God calls us to be in the world. And so God, in this covenant, gives these glorious purposes to Israel. You're going to be my treasured possession. You're going to be my representative. You're going to be the holy nation through which I will bless the world. But there was a requirement that they would keep and obey God's voice and keep the covenant with him. But when you read through the story of Scripture, what you see is that Israel failed to hold up their end of the bargain. That time and time again, they didn't follow God's voice, that they didn't keep his covenant, that they didn't live in the way that God ultimately called them to be, that they failed to be the representative that God wanted them to be in the world. And instead of bringing blessing to the world, they brought strife and more sin and more injustice and more unrighteousness, so much so that God finally sends Israel into exile because of their failure and disobedience. But the good news that we remind ourselves of today is that God knew from the beginning of this covenant that Israel will fail. And he planned from the very beginning to send another representative of Israel, a new Moses. And this new Moses would be faithful to God. He would walk in obedience to God. Where others had sinned, he would walk sinless. Where others did not obey God's voice, he would obey God's voice even to the tiniest dot that he would keep God's law, that he would ultimately represent all of who God is, that he himself would be a mediating priest for all people and all time, and that ultimately he himself would go to the cross and offer himself as a sacrifice for all people everywhere that they could be restored into relationship with God, and he would rise again to defeat that enemy and that serpent, that ancient enemy of death, and declare that God's new kingdom new world is breaking in in the midst of this one. And what we are reminded of is that the promises that God gives to this nation in this ultimately find their fulfillment in Jesus. And because they find its fulfillment in Jesus, when we are in him, we inherit these promises and these purposes. You actually see this in the New Testament. If you have a Bible, I'm going to invite you to just turn quickly over to 1 Peter chapter 2 because I want you to see how this covenant relates and connects even with our identity and purpose today. Peter writes 
to the church scattered in what was now what is now modern-day Turkey, what was referred to as Asia at the time, to encourage Christians who were following the way of Jesus, who had put their hope and trust in him, who had declared him as their Lord, who trusted in him for salvation and were following and living his way of life. Peter writes to them to encourage them. We just studied through these first two chapters a few weeks ago, but Listen again what Peter writes and how he draws the truth of what we see in this covenant that God makes with Israel. 1 Peter 2.9, he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You see, the identity that God gave them now in Christ, he gives to us. We are God's chosen. If you are in Jesus this morning, these descriptors describe you and who you are. God treasures and values you, not because you're awesome, but because of Christ, because he has fulfilled the covenant on your behalf and you are now in him. And so what marked them now marks you. Chosen. Royal treasured, holy. And it doesn't just mark you individually, it marks us together. We are now a nation. We are a people. We are a race. We are the nation. The one whom God possesses. Peter doesn't only connect our identity, he reminds us that we in Christ pick up the purpose as well when he says that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He reminds us that we are called church family to bring the light of Christ into the world and proclaim how incredible he is. And so I want to encourage you this morning. Because maybe some of you, you've been struggling with that aspect of identity. You've been wrestling with those deep questions of purpose. You asked that question in the darkness of your heart, like Jack Frost asked that night that you said, if you put me here, at least tell me why. Let me encourage you, if you're wrestling with that this morning, God invites you to put your focus on one thing and one thing alone, the saving work of Jesus Christ. It is the truth. It is the reality. It is the thing I want you to understand more than anything this morning, that God saves people out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You want to discover your true identity? You want to discover your greater purpose? You want to see what God has for your life? Look to Jesus. Look to his salvation on your behalf. Look to his death and resurrection because it's through that that God brings you out of hopelessness. It's where God takes you from that place of longing and he lavishes upon you his love where he says, you're my child. You're my treasured possession and I have a purpose for you that you would show all the earth who I am how incredible I am as your God and it's where we the church must continue to keep our gaze because it's the saving work of Jesus Christ that defines our identity together our purpose how we are called to live and be 
So church, be reminded, our God is mighty to save. And if you are in Christ this morning, he has saved you and given you that identity and purpose. But if you've never put your faith in Christ, Jesus invites you to do that this morning, to trust him, that his death can cover your sin, that he is risen and is the true Lord of all creation, and you can follow him with your life. Learn his ways. Experience his identity and purpose for you. Let me pray for us, and we'll take a few moments to worship together. Heavenly Father, we stop and just marvel for a moment together that you and your grace and kindness have saved us. God, we were under oppression. Scripture says, and we affirm, we were slaves to sin, unable to even do the righteousness that our hearts led us to do. We've experienced the pain, the suffering, the loneliness, the emptiness, the fruitlessness of that life. But God, we stop this morning and we give you praise. Lord Jesus, that when we were in that place of darkness, you stepped in and entered into our story. That when we were dead, you made us alive. That when we were in bondage, you set us free and you've now brought us into your kingdom and we get to be your people, your treasured possession. And so we just stop this morning just to give you the praise, God, to say thank you for saving us Thank you for doing what we could not do. And I pray, God, in those moments where we all wrestle with our identity and our purpose, that you would take us back to that place where we're reminded of your saving grace. That you would help our eyes to be focused on Jesus. I pray even for my brothers and sisters right now, God, who are here, who do feel that pull and that struggle in their heart, that have been wrestling with who they are and why they're here, that you would help by your spirit, for them to see the truth of Jesus, his saving act on their behalf. They would discover in that that you love them, that you have a purpose for them and a plan for their lives to use them for your glory. But I pray right now, God, that you would help us to worship you in response to what you've done. That we would proclaim your excellencies here so that we might be a people that proclaim your excellencies everywhere that we go. So Holy Spirit, would you move now, even as we worship, to let us savor and celebrate the great work of Christ on our behalf. We love you. Pray these things in his great name. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.